Well, friends, I encourage you to have your Bibles open in front of you at the passage that Avril read for us, this passage in Esther 9, verses 1 through 19, uh, coming towards the end of our studies in the book of Esther, Esther 9, 1 to 19. There are certain days that are just kind of hardwired into our psyche, aren't there? Days that whenever you get a, a new diary, the first thing you do is flick to that particular date and write it in. Days, perhaps, if you don't use a diary anymore, days that you set on yearly repeat on your Google Calendar or on your iCalendar or whatever it is that you use. Perhaps it's your birthday. You just like to look forward to that day and see when it is. You like to, to plan what it is that you're going to do with that day. Perhaps it's a sadder event, the, the anniversary perhaps of a loved one's passing. Perhaps if you're married, it's the, the wedding anniversary or it's your spouse's birthday. Certain days that just punctuate our yearly calendar, certain days that we just need to remember, certain days that we just need to know. And these verses in Esther 9 that were read for us explain to us this morning how the Jews got one of their days, how the Jews got one of their days of feasting, how one of the days came to be written onto the Jewish calendar. It is, of course, the Feast of Purim. We want to think about three things from this section and see three things together from these verses in Esther chapter 9. Firstly, we want to think about a day of reckoning, a day when the Jews gather together and defend themselves against their enemies. Secondly, then, we want to think about the day's extension. We see this kind of strange request that Esther makes that the Jews be allowed one more day in Susa the Citadel, that the, the decree be carried over for an extra day in Susa. And then thirdly and finally, we'll see the day of celebration, the day of rejoicing, because the Jews are delivered from their enemies, from the hand of those who hated them. The day of reckoning, the day's extension, and the day of celebration. So the day of reckoning then, first of all, and we see that in verses 1 through 10. Last week with Robin, as we, we thought about Esther chapter 8, we began to see the beginning of salvation for the Jews. We began to see how they were going to be saved. We saw and thought about how it was always the destiny of those who reject God, of those who stand against God's people. It was always their destiny to fall. It was always their destiny to be cast down. But yet there was a problem, wasn't there? Because in Esther chapter 8, in a sense, we see the beginning of the outworking of their salvation. We see the beginning of the plan of salvation being unfurled. We see the beginning at the hand of Mordecai. But we remember, of course, about the law of the Medes and Persians. What was the thing that we, we, we've constantly reminded ourselves about the law of the Medes and the Persians? That it cannot be changed. It couldn't be altered. So all Mordecai and Esther could do in Esther chapter 8 was send out another decree to try and counteract the decree that Haman had made. To send out another edict that allowed God's people to gather together and allowed God's people to attack their enemies. So whilst there was joy and gladness in Esther chapter 8 verse 17... Whilst there was joy and gladness amongst the Jews, whilst many people converted to Judaism for fear of the Jews, the solution hasn't actually come about yet. There's still a day of reckoning that needs to draw near. There's still a day of reckoning to come. And that's where we get to then as we come to Esther chapter 9 and verse 1. We see that on the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, the day, remember, when Haman's decree was due to come into force. The day, remember, whenever all Jews were due to, due to be killed, destroyed and annihilated. But there's tension here because it's also the day that Mordecai's counter-decree 
comes into force. We have Haman's decree on the one hand that all Jews should be killed. And we have Mordecai's decree on the other hand that says all the Jews can kill their enemies. And these two decrees are competing against each other. And there's tension throughout the empire. You can imagine the tension of, of trying to decide whose side you were on. Who would you side with? Would you side with the Jews and the decree that Mordecai made? Or would you side with Haman and the decree that he made, the edict that he made? And we notice the reversal in verse 1, the, the reversal that we thought about with the boys and girls. <clears throat> that this 13th day of the 12th month, this month of Adar, was when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, hoped to gain control over them. But yet the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The, the, the enemies of the Jews hope to master them, but actually what happens is the Jews gain mastery over those who hate them. And of course, this is what God specialises in doing, isn't it? This is how God operates in many senses, isn't it? He brings unexpected consequences. He brings unexpected results. Think about the book of Judges. Think about Gideon there threshing wheat, hiding because of the fear of the Midianites. And yet God would use him, this timid, shy person, to bring deliverance for his people. Think about the book of Genesis. Think about the story of Joseph. That very famous verse where Joseph assures his brothers that all of the things they did to him, all of the, the mistreatment that they'd given to him, they meant that for his harm. But God, but God, but God meant it for good. God had used the harm that you've done for the salvation of many people. God brings about unexpected, unintended consequences. Think, of course, most supremely about the cross of Jesus Christ. Where the sinful religious leaders no doubt thought they'd won. Where the sinful religious leaders thought no doubt that they'd gain mastery over Jesus. They thought no doubt that this would be the end of him. That this would be the last they would hear of him. No doubt that they'd shut him up once and for all. And yet it was that cross, yet it was that death, yet it was that sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself that the enemies of God hoped would bring defeat, that God actually used to bring many sons to glory. As Christians this morning, friends, we can guarantee ourselves that we're always on the winning side. However it looks at the moment, however it might feel at the moment, we know that in Christ we have the victory, that ultimately death has been defeated, that ultimately Christ is the victor. Now at the moment it feels hard to see that, doesn't it? It feels hard to believe that, doesn't it? It doesn't feel like we're winning at the moment. We have people within the Presbyterian Church in Ireland who say that it will be dead in 20 years if it doesn't change its attitudes. We have the rapidly advancing secular agenda of the world and that's caused some within the church to worry about how the church is going to fit into this new world. Has led some on the outside of the church to believe that if they get enough people to say things about the church that the church will change its message, that the church will shift and that they, because of the sheer number of people they have, that they have mastery over the church. Yet friends, rest assured today that our God reigns, that as the church of Jesus Christ, we are on the winning side. That one day all of those who hate the church, that one day all of those who hate the people of Jesus Christ will see and know that our God reigns. That ultimately one day all of those who thought they had mastery over the church and over God's people will see that our God reigns. 
So the Jews gather together, verse 2. And notice the end, the phrase at the end of verse 2, because it's going to be this, I think, that helps to shape our reading of this passage. It's going to be this that helps us to, to, to get to grips here with what happens in Esther chapter 9. This phrase at the end of verse 2. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. This wasn't the bloodthirsty Jews just attacking anything that moved. This was the Jews defending themselves. This was the Jews gathering together to protect themselves against those who would seek their harm. I don't know if many of you this morning are interested in boxing in any way, but one of the last things that a boxing referee will say to the two fighters before the fight begins is this. Protect yourself at all times. The referee saying to the boxer in that moment, look, you're responsible for protecting yourself. You're responsible for keeping yourself safe. You're responsible for your own protection. And so too here, as we come to Esther 9, the Jews are responsible for their own protection. They have the official help, verse 3, the fear of Mordecai, the fear of his advancement, means that kind of all layers, all strata of the, the, the Persian Empire are helping him. The satraps, the officials, the governors, they're all helping the Jews because of the fear of Mordecai, because of his advancement. In Susa, the citadel, we're told that the Jews killed 500 men. There's no mention here of women and children, which the decree allowed. There's no mention of women and children, as Haman had planned to do with the Jews. And amongst these 500 men, we're told that were the 10 sons of Haman. But the question as we come to the end of this section is, well, how do we allow this genocide? How do our biblical ethics allow us to wash over here, to permit, to, to, to celebrate even the deaths of these 500 men? Well, that's where we come back to what we read in verse 2. That the whole thrust of this section is that it was those who, who sought to harm the Jews that the Jews harmed. That it was those who were the enemies of the Jews who were killed. It was those who hated the Jews, or, or slight variations thereof, to whom harm came. Now the population of Susa was obviously much more than 500. So there were people within Susa who had obviously made the decision not to side with him and not to side with his edict, who decided not to harm the Jews, and therefore they were perfectly safe. So these 500 people who are killed, these 500 men who are killed, are those who had sought to do the Jews harm. Those who had sought to lay hands on the Jews. Those who had sought to kill the Jews. As Robin reminded us last week, this is the fate of God's enemies. The fate of people who oppose God and his children is always to fall before them. Is always to face certain death. And judgment. And that's what happens here. The enemies of God's people are judged. Those who seek to lay hands on the Jews are judged. And it's also what will happen to you this morning, friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your saviour. Death will come. And after death comes judgment. It is appointed for man to die once. And after that, to face judgment. Setting yourself up against God. Setting yourself up against God's people never ends well. So that's the first thing we see then. But secondly then, we see the day's extension. After the day of reckoning, we see the day's extension. And we see that in verses 11 through 15. 
These 500 men have been killed in Susa. These 500 men have been killed in the citadel. And the number reaches the ears of the king. And the king says to Esther, well, look, if this is what's happened in Susa, if this is what's happened in the citadel, if this is what's happened in the secure place, imagine what's going on in the provinces. Imagine how many people are dead out in the sticks somewhere. What else do you want? What else can I do for you? The king here sees that Esther's God is with her. The king here sees that it's fruitless, it's pointless trying to stand against Esther and her God and her people. And so he's willing to give her whatever she wants. He's willing to do whatever it is she asks. Now notice here that it's slightly different, isn't it? The, the, the king isn't quite so gracious. The king isn't offering up to half his empire as he'd done on previous occasions. But after that, we get into slightly choppier water, don't we? Slightly more difficult things to understand. The king has said to Esther, look, what is it that you want? What can I do for you? How can I help you? And then Esther says to the king, essentially, look, let the decree run for another day. Keep it going for another day. Verse 13, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Let's have another day of killing. Let's have another day with this edict in force. And more than that, actually, let's kill. Let's hang the ten sons of Haman on the gallows, on the pole that their father built. In recent weeks, there's been a lot of talk about grace periods. I'm not foolish or brave enough to offer any comment other than that. But it was a period where rules didn't apply in some senses. A period when supermarkets and others were freed from the obligations of the protocol in Northern Ireland. And what Esther's asking for here is essentially an anti-grace period, isn't it? A period where the rules continue to apply. A period when the killing is allowed to continue. Let this decree run over. Let the killing continue. And again, we find ourselves asking the question, well, look, how are we going to cope with this? How do we deal with this section? How are we going to digest this? Now, there's one option that says, well, look, remember the beginning of the book way back in January, way back when we started the book of Esther. We remember that Haman's introduced to us as a descendant of Amalek. We remembered then, as we thought about that in, in January, we, we, we thought about how King Saul was supposed to have destroyed all the descendants of Amalek. And so what we have here in Esther, as we read about these events surrounding him, and what we have here in Esther is essentially the carrying over of that decree from King Saul's time into Queen Esther's time. That Esther finishes the job that King Saul really should have done so long ago. That's perfectly valid, uh, and it's perfectly valid inter interpretation of this text. And if that's what you choose to go down, I won't fall out with you. But I think it's also important for us to remember here that the Bible's heroes are never presented to us without their flaws. Think about Noah, the only righteous man who survived the flood and yet sinned greatly. Think about David, a man after God's own heart and yet sinned greatly. Think about King Solomon, a man who sought wisdom above all else and yet sinned greatly. See the pattern? People of God who are still capable of great and grievous sin. And I think about Jesus Christ, who when tempted to call down an angel, an army of angels from heaven to take him down from the cross, instead prayed, what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Esther responds in human fashion. They threaten me. They threaten my people. They threatened us with genocide. Therefore, I will wipe them out. I will make sure that they are all gone. The only truly sinless one in the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world. He is the one we need to look to this morning. He is the one who takes away our sin. The one who, when reviled, didn't revile in return. The one who, when struck, didn't strike in return, but instead entrusted himself to him who just judges justly. Instead, trusted himself to his father. So the king does as he's been told. Verse 14, the Jews gathered together on the next day and another 300 men are killed. Another 300 of those who are opposed to the Jews, who sought to harm the Jews. But notice, they don't lay any hand on the plunder. Very end of verse 15. They killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. It's another reminder. It's just dropped in casually here, but it's another reminder for us that the Jews weren't in this for the plunder. They weren't in this for the money. They weren't interested in territory expansion here. They were defending themselves against those who sought their harm. And that was it. Thirdly, finally, this morning, then we want to think about this day of celebration, day of celebration. And we see that in verses 16 through 19. So the scene switches in verse 16 from Susa. It switches from the citadel where the whole narrative has been based so far. But now we get a kind of a bird's eye view. Now we get a view from above to the rest of the provinces. We get told what's happened there. We're told that in the provinces, 75,000 people are killed. The Jews get relief from their enemies. They get relief from those who hated them. Here we get a sense of the racism that existed, not just within Susa itself, not confined to just Susa, the citadel, but throughout the empire. All of these people who hated the Jews. And then we get this kind of historical note, if you like, explaining why there's different days celebrated. In the provinces where the edict was not extended, the Jews relaxed and celebrated on the 14th day of the 12th month, on the 14th day of Adar. They made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews in Susa, the citadel, verse 18, rested on the 15th day. And they made that day their day of feasting and gladness. So that's why the Jews in the provinces were told, hold to the 14th of Adar as a day of feasting and celebration. And the Jews in Susa, the citadel, hold to the 15th day of Adar, a day that they have as a holiday, a day in which they exchange presents and food with one another. Now, what are we going to do here? 76,000 people in the empire have been killed. And we find the Jews relaxing, celebrating and sending presents to one another. We find the Jews almost treating it as Christmas, despite the fact that 76,000 people have been killed. Well, think about it from their perspective. What's happened here? They've been delivered. Their enemies have been defeated. Their lives have been saved from those who sought their harm. In a sense, they have been saved. Of course, friends, as we gather together this morning, we rejoice in our salvation, don't we? We rejoice that we have been saved. We rejoice that we've been taken from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light in Jesus Christ. Yet what are we rejoicing in as we gather this morning? Well, we're rejoicing in the death of Christ, that he died the death I deserve, that he paid the penalty that I should have paid. We rejoice this morning because our lives have been saved. And that's exactly what we find the Jews doing in Susa and the provinces. Being right with God, being saved by God and for God is always a cause of rejoicing. Being saved by God and made right with God is always, 
always, always a cause for rejoicing. The day of reckoning then that comes to us all, the day when we die in our sins or live in Christ. The day of extension and the day of celebration when we rejoice at the sins, at our sins forgiven, at the foot of the cross. Amen.